Honda Career Pod, brought to you by Transition Solutions. Your host for today's episode is a member of the CareerPod team, Mr. Gary Walrap. Today, Gary is talking with Richard DeCoste, a registered architect. Richard has been an architect for 50 years and has designed many buildings. He worked for a design company early in his career, and mid-career, he really started up his own architectural firm. It was a small firm, and uh, later in his career, uh, he really ventured out on his own. He, he would be the, the chief architect, uh, would handle all aspects of the business. So, uh, welcome, Rich. Thank you. Uh, let's talk about uh, your early years, uh, particularly uh, your education. Okay. Um, I came from a blue-collar background uh, in Boston. Um, all of my relatives were in the trades. My father was a welder, sheet yeah. metal worker, carpenter. So when I went to high school, I went into a technical course, technical high school, where I learned uh, woodworking, welding, sheet metal, all those kinds of things. But I also learned drafting. And I liked drafting. That really piqued my interest. Um, I liked drawing buildings, just particularly. Um, you could draw gears and motors and electrical circuit boards and all of that, but uh, buildings interest me because they were bigger, more complicated, and had a little more cre- creativity. Sure, I understand. So from there, I applied to college, and I was accepted to college named Wentworth Institute of Technology, which was a two-year um, school and I was in the architectural engineering program there. Okay. Learned to um, design and draw some more, but they were more technically oriented about how do you construct a building, what's the the science and math behind doing that. More of an engineering background than an architectural. Uh, once I graduated from there, I went to a um, six-year night school, which is called the Boston Architectural Center. And they were really uh, into architectural design, but also how do you take that design and turn it into buildings and drawings? Um, you know, it was a valuable um, situation because it was a night school, so you were going to school at night, but you were working full-time during the day. So they both interacted with each other. What you were learning in school, you applied um, to your job, and what you were learning in your job, you applied studies. Now at that point were you doing architectural work or other types of work while you're going to school at night? It was uh, working with a large engineering company but I was doing the buildings for them so I was in their architectural group. Okay. Heavy industrial buildings. So while you're going to school you're getting good hands-on experience. That's a wonderful way to go. Um, So after the six years what was the next uh, progression? Educationally well, or cert- or certification-wise or registering-wise? Well, what happened was that uh, while I was working and finishing at uh, the Boston Architectural Center, um, a guy I worked with was working as an intern in the summers, but he was going to Harvard uh, Graduate School of Design. And he told me that uh, he thought I could go to Harvard and do really well there. Um, and he encouraged me to apply. So I applied, and I was 
one of the first people from the Boston Architectural Center to get admitted to Harvard. Uh, so I went there for two and a half years, five semesters, uh, which was strictly a design school. It was, you know, creativity, design, ideas, and meeting with people from all over the world, uh, which was a real eye-opener in terms of yeah. what the possibilities are and how to see endless possibilities and things. I can see you at Harvard. That must be must have been a terrific program. And um, was that at night or during the day? Well, I was married with two kids at the time, uh, so I would work um, part of the day, and then I'd go to school part of the day. I would hop on the the subway back and forth from work to school. Um, I'd work uh, thirty hours a week, and I went to school probably twenty hours a week and. Probably did 20 hours of homework. You were a busy guy. I was. But uh, it's, it's great to have the energy of youth. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think. Help my gray hair. Perhaps you can explain to me uh, a typical architectural project uh, from beginning to end. Basically, and this is what a, a small firm architect would do. Uh, big firms have many people in them who, who do many different roles, but... If you're in a smaller firm as an architect, you're doing the marketing, the sales, the um, administration, you know, all that kind of thing. You're also you're trying to find clients. So you're networking, you find a client, you, you go meet with the client, uh, you find out what their goals are, what their needs are. Uh, from there, you need to put together a schedule and a budget so that you can give them a fee proposal to do the work. And uh, then you get together with, with the client, um, build what they call a building program, which is determine who's in the building, how many people, what their jobs are, what their needs are in terms of offices, cubicles, industrial space, uh, all those sorts of things, you know, so you can determine the square footage of the building. Okay, Rich, uh, you mentioned something that intrigues me a little bit. Um... In terms of the proposal, um, do they issue uh, like RFPs where they're going to bring in a number? They're going to you'll bid on a site on a, on a job. Uh, public companies and municipalities, yes, uh, states, cities, towns, federal government sure. issue RFPs because they have to have competitive. It's not a bidding environment. They don't go by. Uh, you don't submit a fee to them. Okay. They Once they choose the person that they find has the best credentials for the project, they would select that person and negotiate the fee with them. Okay. That's a good way to, uh, to do it, I think. So back to the, uh, the first steps when you're dealing with the client with, with those, uh, those uh, documents. And how does that work again? Okay. So... Once you've developed the building program with the, with the client, you know how many people need to be in the building, you need to determine how those people all interact on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, does marketing and sales need to be together? Does purchasing need to be with the technical people? Um, you know, the software engineers need to um, sit next to the assembly people. Uh, okay. Those kinds of issues. And so you develop a what they call a functional relationship diagram, just loose and sketchy, just with arrows pointing back and forth to who needs to be next to who and those kinds of relationships. 
from there, you would take and start to develop, you know, usually two or three conceptual floor plan designs that lay out the floor plan, locate everybody within that, and start to look at the number of spaces in the building. Sure. You can then determine all the functional requirements of the building, how many toilets you need, uh, lunch rooms and break rooms, um, where people park outside, how they get into the building, and security requirements. Sure. Uh, is that something uh, that, that an architect would do on a drawing board and or on a computer, or how does that work? Okay. When I started out, it was all hand-drawn. Everything was drawn by hand, uh, pencil and paper. Um, you would sketch a lot and do overlays of sketches and overlays and then start to get it, you know, multiple, multiple drawings. Sure. Um, uh, as time went on, and uh, things became more high-tech, computers became more powerful, more, uh, you able to do more things with them, people started drafting, uh, drawing on the computer. In 2D, they could draw a floor plan, they could draw a building elevation or a section through a building. Um, as the computers got more and more sophisticated, you could now just start to design in three dimensions and look at a building, rotate the building, turn it upside down, walk through the building. You could start to add colors and layers and materials in it. You could start to do renderings. Um, nowadays, you can even connect it to a 3D printer and build 3D models out of that. In the old days, we used to have to build cardboard models, which would take a week, or you know, depending how sophisticated they were, could take up to a week to build. Sure. Just so you could visualize the project, the size, the scale, the massing, how it might relate to buildings next to it, you know, the scale of the buildings next to it, uh, the spaces between the buildings, all of these things that you need to visualize um, can now be done on a computer that had to be done by hand before. Okay. The, the process, uh, we left off where you had drafted or, or did on a computer the floor plan, the basic floor with the functions that you need to put in there. So take us through the, the next steps and, and give us a sense of the time. Is it a month? Is it, is it, a, is it a six months? How does that work? Well, it depends on the scale of the project. If right. you're doing a house, it might take a couple of weeks. If you're doing a hospital, it might take a few months to do that. Um, so, and depending on the size of your organization, if you've got 10 people working on it, it takes less time than if you have one person working on it. So, sure. Uh, it's all scale dependent. The next step would be you, you develop the floor plan and then you refine it a little bit. Right. At that point, the architect is, I like to think of him like the uh, conductor of a symphony orchestra. Okay. He has all these people out there playing different instruments that he needs to bring into um, one piece of music. They can't all just be playing different notes at different times. Okay. The conductor takes all these different instruments and, and creates the whole lot of them. The architect, at this point in the process, needs to bring in engineers to the project. He needs to bring in structural engineers, HVAC, uh, site engineers, plumbing engineers, acoustic engineers, interior designers, uh, cost estimators, all sorts of people depending on the size and scale of the project. He needs to assemble those people and they need to put their input into the building 
so that the architect can make sure that what he's drawn is buildable and that you know it's it can fall within a budget but that each of these players have a valuable role that the architect knows a little bit about structure a little bit about HVAC a little bit about this and that yeah but these are the people who are ultimately going to design their portion of a project sure so. well uh, conducting that orchestra to me, you know, it's not a simple thing. Uh, and there's a lot of timing, I think, involved. You have to get certain things done before you can do other, uh, other things. So uh, that's great. So now, now it's all agreed to, I would think. And, and now you're in the build mode, if we could just take it from there. Well, once, once you get all that together yeah. and you come up with a, a design... Uh, of a building at a certain point, then you go into what they call construction documents. And that's literally drawing every inch of this building so that somebody in the field knows how to build it. Somebody can estimate it for the cost of it, but somebody can actually build the building based on these drawings. They know what materials to use, they know how long they are, they know all the different design properties about them. Sure. And in the scale of a project, design portion, again, depends on the project, would take about 10% for the concept, 20% to refine that concept, 40% to do the construction documents, and the last 20 to 25% of your time and effort would be monitoring or observing the construction, making sure that the contractor is building what's shown on the drawings and that he's building it as per the building codes. So as a conductor uh, of this group, um, you would have to uh, make sure that everybody is in sync. Yes. Um, there's a lot of uh, room for misinterpretation in it. You know, the, the better the drawings, the less... Um, there is of that, but you know, if you if you don't design a good set of drawings, a draw a good set of drawings, the contractor has to assume things and make up things, and you know things can go wrong. So you've sure, got to, you've got to um, make sure that. And there's a whole process for that. It's called RFIs, request for information. Okay. If the contractor doesn't know something on a drawing, he would ask you the question: What is this? What material is it? Where do I get it? You know, what's it supposed to be doing? Can I substitute this material for that material? Right. Uh, because this one isn't available in the time frame that I need to buy it kind of thing. So there's a lot of interaction going back and forth between architects, engineers, and contractors during the construction phase. Sure. So I would imagine that you're on the site occasionally. You're on the phone. You're on the computer. And, yeah. and all those things. Uh... The old days, you were at the site a lot. Um, okay. Nowadays with computers and phones and cameras and all that, a lot of that, you know, you might, you know, just do electronically uh, back and forth. And But you still need to visit the site. You still need to get out there and, and put your eyeballs on what's happening. Um, making sure the schedule is being adhered to, the costs are being adhered to. Uh, the billing of the contractor is... Um, in sync with the work he's doing, that he's not overbilling the client, 
uh, for things. Uh, so it's a complicated process. Sure. Um, not to get into too much detail here, but uh, so the proposal will have billing where the architect bills the builder of the building at certain increments during the uh, project. Well, there's, there's two things going on. The architect works directly for the owner, and the contractor works directly for the owner. Okay. But all the paperwork flows through all three. So I would bill the owner separately for my time. Okay. The contractor will bill the owner separately for his work, um, but I would oversee uh, and approve his, what they call requisitions for payment, to make sure that they're uh, equal to the amount of work that he's done. You bill the builder of the of the building by um, submitting an invoice, and you're typically paid in the number of hours you work. Would that be right? Yes. Well, we bill the owner. Okay. And uh, sometimes it's a lump sum contract, and okay. you have it worked out where you get ten percent in the concept stage, twenty percent. Uh, you could bill them monthly based on what your fee is, uh, depending on the phase. You're going to spend most of your money in the 40% of the work that's the construction documents. You'll spend less money in the construction observation phase just because there's less work to do there. Sure. Um, well, that's great. As, as we get closer to the building is finished and they cut the ribbon and, uh, you know, it's... Uh, it's sort of the final stage. Is there any uh, process within that? Well, um, it's been getting more and more complicated uh, as buildings get more and more sophisticated with their materials, with their systems, with energy requirements, with climate issues and all those sorts of things. So now more and more, especially uh, government agencies, cities, states, towns, federal government, um, require the architect, the builder, and the engineers to do what they call a commissioning, which is to make sure that that building, you don't you just don't hand them the keys and walk away anymore. When okay. that building is up and running, you have to go and make sure that it is performing like it was designed. So it's not spending more uh, energy than it was designed for. So it's not, you know, everybody's getting the proper amount of heat and cooling in the building. Right. That, it's using the proper amount of water that it was designed for. Right. So do, do each of the three main people, uh, architects, builders, and, and engineers, um, do they do their own uh, review, or, or is there another sort of a, a, a third party who sort of gives it the blessing that everything is, is working right? Uh, for the most part, they just do their own in-house reviews. Okay. Um, each trade or discipline engineers, but the architect is really the person who has to look at all of the drawings and make sure that all of the work done by all of the trades coordinate with the architectural work. That, you know, a lot of times, you know, an engineer might oversize something that doesn't fit in a room that you, you built. Sure. Or the beams stick down so low that you can't run the HVAC system through it. So you, the architect is the one who coordinates the entire uh, package of drawings, but again, getting back into these sophisticated computers, the computer will now do a lot of that in three dimensions. 
uh, and you know the architect can just go in and look at where all the conflicts are. Okay, uh, Richard, what advice would you give to uh, anyone who's interesting in entering this field? Maybe a, a student who uh, ha has an architectural education. What do you think would be a good way for them to build their their career? Well, I think one of the important things to to think about is that architecture is very diverse and you can as an architect you can do a lot of things within the architectural profession um, but you have to also think about your life and your lifestyle if you come from a small town you want to go back to your small town you're probably going to work in a small firm if you're in a, a larger metropolitan area the firms will start getting bigger and bigger. And if you're in the bigger cities, the firms will get much larger. Boston, LA, New York, Chicago, Detroit, all have very large firms. So if you like to go in the office every day from eight to five, do your job, work on a specific thing and have a daily workload that you know is consistent, that's one thing. If you want to be a, a smaller firm architect, you you're going to get involved more, let's say, in a 10-person firm. Um, you're going to be more involved in the administration of the firm. You're going to be more involved in the uh, marketing of the firm, finding the clients, um, designing the work, working with the other engineers and contractors. You'll be doing everything multiple times, multiple jobs every day. It's... That's great. Um, is there a, a hierarchy? Let's, you talked about a 10-person firm. Uh, so, so a young person who has a, is registered, how do they typical come, typically come into the firm? Uh, are they uh, interns? Are they, is it the old trades concept where there is an apprentice type of thing? Uh, how does that generally work? Well, it depends on your level of education. Um, you need a master's degree, uh, excuse me, you need a bachelor's degree to uh, be able to take the registration exam. But you also need three years of full-time experience before you're able to take the exam. So a bachelor's with three years experience, you can take the exam and become a registered architect. Um, in, if you want to work in a big town or a big city, a master's degree is a, you know, the, the jobs are more competitive, so a master's degree will help you get a better job and do, you know, better projects. Um, so you can work in the profession without being registered, but you wouldn't be able to stamp the drawings. You need to be able to certify the drawings. You're registered by the state, uh, state by state, uh, to do projects. Um, so if you're not registered, you cannot have your own firm because... You can't stamp drawings. Um, so sure. as you enter a firm, you will enter in probably in a lower level, get your three years of experience to be able to take the test, uh, if you want to take the test, and then you will grow in the firm depending on what your skills are. If your skills are creativity, drawing, sketching, designing, that's one thing. If you are very technically oriented about how does the facade of a building go together. 
How do you put masonry next to steel, next to glass? What kinds of sealants do you need? I mean, it gets very, very detailed. Expansion, contraction, all those kinds of things need to be dealt with. Great. Um, um, we know that in law firms, uh, you have the idea of becoming a partner uh, in a law firm. Uh, in an architectural firm that's of some size, uh, could there be a, a, a path to being a partner? There's definitely a path, um, and again, depending on the scale of the firm, um, they typically call them associates and principals in architectural firms. The bigger firm might have okay. bigger corporate titles sure. to it, but uh, as you work up through, you, you might start as a draftsman. From there, you would go to a designer. From there, you would go to maybe a project manager who's overseeing the entire project. Uh, you might be the architect in charge. Uh, from there, you might become an associate in the firm, which is overseeing multiple teams and multiple projects, and your next step would be up to principal. I'd just like you to give me a ballpark figure of an architect coming out of school, maybe has his three years, her three years, and they just get their, their registration. Uh, give me a ballpark in terms of what their annual income could be. Well, again, it's it's all dependent on the size of the firm. Okay. Um, and the location of the firm. Sure. If you're working out in the rural parts of the country, it's a lot less. Yes. If you're working for a downtown high-rise firm, then you're going to make a lot more. Um, obviously, you start out low as a draftsman. Okay. Uh, you might start out at forty, fifty thousand dollars a year, um, and as you grow up, you know, a hundred thousand dollars um i'm a little bit out of this loop now because i've only been working for myself and hadn't had employees for a while sure uh, but you can make a substantial amount of money um the problem with architecture is the downside to architecture i should say is it's very economically driven so as the economy goes through cycles you might start a project this project could stop uh you know, as if you go into recession, there's a lot less work for architects. Sure. Um, and I know that the last major recession we had was 2008. Uh, and I would imagine that you were impacted by that. Well, in 2008, I was in a firm of 12 people. Uh, I had a firm of 12 people. And um, we were going along very well had a number of projects, uh, doing a lot of work, uh, and it seemed like within one day or one week, all of the economy hit, all the projects dried up, any projects we had coming in stopped, any project we were working on stopped. Uh, we had one project that continued for a year, uh, but basically we let most of the staff go, and the principals of the firm didn't even get paid for a year. So... Um, you have to go through those cycles. Yeah. You really need to prepare for them. You really need to have enough in the bank that you can weather those storms, uh, which is a little easier for a smaller firm to do than a larger firm. Sure. Uh, the idea of, of luck in, in, any, uh, in any profession, uh, good luck or bad luck, uh, within your career, uh, have you experienced either good or bad luck? Well, I think the bad luck comes in the form of the economy, you know, just the cycles of the economy. And 
where you are in your life at the time that hits and you know sure how that affects your job and your your family life um the good luck I mean, for me personally it was having a teacher in wentworth who said you really should go to the boston architectural center because that's more your type of school it's not you're not a technical person. You're more of a design person. Sure. And so, if you hadn't met that person right. by some chance, maybe you, another teacher would have told you something else. Right. Exactly. So in, individual people uh, impact. Yeah. And then, as I said earlier, a, a guy I worked with who went to Harvard said, you could go to Harvard and you could do very well there. When, you know, coming from my background, I never thought I would even have a chance to sure. go to Harvard. But, sure. You know. A blue-collar kid. Yeah. 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 And uh, let me ask you, uh, you know, the magic of Harvard. Uh, it does have a certain cachet. And uh, has that helped you as you showed your credentials in your career? Absolutely. I mean, it just, it opens doors uh, that normally wouldn't be open. I mean, you could talk to people about experiences that you had at Harvard. I could tell them how, you know, I met with, all these famous architects and I worked with them and I had them as my professors and you know that goes a long way to giving you credibility um, you could have been the worst student at Harvard but you still might be, make out better than the best student at the next school the field sounds very very interesting and your description of everything you did was uh, very interesting Richard uh, I want to thank you uh, for the valuable advice and contribution you made to career part. I would also say that you certainly adapted throughout your career to the changes in technology and business cycles and were able to provide excellent architectural services to your clients.